0: What's up my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today we're talking about something a little bit different, something a, a little bit off the uh, the normal trail that we travel down in game design and talking about mechanics and theme and all that. We're talking about pervasive game design, something a little bit different, something you might not even have heard about. It's something I didn't know a whole lot about until my good friend Mr. Greg Loring Albright sent me a message and said, hey man, we need to talk about this. So Greg, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for uh, accurately characterizing my uh, cold call and request to be on your show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I love it, man. I love, you, you had a great episode a while back talking about micro games, and oh, let's, let's talk about that real quick. How's how's the uh, that game going?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, Leviathan is funded. Uh, we more than doubled our funding goal, sure. and it's in production right now. I've been looking at uh, advanced art, and it should be available in September October. So. Awesome.
0: Congrats on that, man. Congrats that is that. No, Thank you. no small task to get a game finished and funded and produced and delivered. True. Now you're working on that, you know, the last part now. And I, I That's think right. I, I'm excited for you to kind of get that thing into people's hands. I know there's a lot of work and time and effort went into it. Yes, but indeed. today we're talking about pervasive game design. And so what is that? Like what is pervasive game design? Like let's get a good working definition because I feel like this, this is something people most of us haven't really heard about or thought about.
1: Sure. Yeah. So pervasive games, as I understand them, uh, are games that expand the magic circle. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with that topic Um, through either through space or time or both. So pervasive games pervade uh, space when you play tag on a city block. You're sort of moving the game space. You're opening the magic circle to include places that maybe aren't otherwise a part of the game. Um, or through time, uh, something as we were getting connected on this call that Gabe mentioned was Pokemon Go, yeah. uh, which does both. You're you're always playing Pokemon Go even when you're not playing. That it's on, you can consult it, you can go into it. Um, I played Ingress, one of the the precursors to Pokemon Go, and it's a game where you control these portals by walking around your neighborhood and I would walk I would walk to work and I would check on my portals and I would guard them from the other team and then when I would come home from work some of the portals had been weakened or had been turned to the other team's side. So the game's going on even when I'm not there. It's pervasive in time as well as space.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. And these are games that, you know, a lot of us have been playing forever. We just never thought of it as a pervasive game even though yep. that's kind of what it did. Whether you played hide and seek in your entire neighborhood was the uh, the yep. game board, so to speak, or playing tag or you know all the PE games that we played, but let's let's kind of go into some examples and then like, just in general, and then we can go into kind of more specific, like board game examples to kind of frame this conversation.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so, there aren't that many famous examples of pervasive games, at least outside of the, the scholarship uh, that I'm familiar with, because they're so resource intensive. It usually takes a number of people, not only to design these things, but to, to run them and to have people present. Yeah. Um, one that, that is maybe a little more well known is called Journey to the End of the Night. Uh, and you should google this and if you if you don't know what i'm talking about because it's awesome uh it's it's this free-to-play sort of open source I'm, i'm gonna tap and google it right now um but it's a tag game that plays in the city and there are rules for using public transit the game is supposed to take about like five hours it's spread over like a few miles uh so yeah it's it's a very cool it's a very cool pervasive game and it's Again, it's it takes over the city, it moves the game into the public space.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. This actually reminds me of something I did with some high school students a few summer go, uh, summers ago. So I work for a church during the summer, and I run all these like mission trips and, and groups come in from all over the country, mm-hmm. and we work with people experiencing homelessness in downtown Atlanta. And so I had this idea one time, for one summer, that I wanted to do this like module kind of thing. And I wanted students to understand kind of the bigger picture of what someone that's dealing with homelessness or or trying to get on food stamps or trying to get a job or you know all the things that people in poverty deal with trying to get these students who are mostly middle-class white kids uh, trying to help Mm -hmm. them understand reality and so we created what effectively was a game it was like this kind of glorified scavenger hunt where in our giant church parking lot we set up all these stations and one represented the uh, the housing office and one was the uh, the office you have to go to to get food stamps and this was a church where you could get some clothes and like all these there's like 12 i think stations where i had people that work for me my staff they would they would go and kind of man these stations and people would, you know they have to walk up and fill out all these paperwork things and they, everybody had like an id and like you had like your sheet of paper that told you your name and like your backstory and what you're dealing with and what you're trying to accomplish and that kind of thing and so and it was the most frustrating and it was hot it was 100 degree atlanta heat outside and i made them they had to carry their bag like whatever bag they brought with them yep. to this you know for the mission trip they had to carry that thing around and then i had their leaders Uh, walk around and, like, just doing, uh, like, annoying things. Uh, Sometimes, like, some of the leaders were police officers, and they would just go hassle people. Like, hey, you've been standing here for more than two minutes. You need to move along. You know, like, stuff like that. Just the the normal things that people on the street deal with. And it was, like, a three-hour hateful event game, basically. Yeah. like, glorified scavenger hunt. And, like, my staff, there was only six of them, and there were 12 stations. And so they would rotate. And so somebody nice. would like all the way done with filling out their paperwork and the staff person would be like, All right, I'm done and they would like close the close the station <laughs> and walk away. And that kid would have to just sit there and wait for somebody else to show up and, and run the, you know, the open the open the food stamp office back up, so to speak. Yeah. And it was yeah, just I'm this really it's so yeah, true. yeah, and it was this really interesting, kind of pervasive game just trying to help these kids understand reality for what you know and you're know it's you going to do this in a day and this actually takes six months this actually takes a year you know with housing it takes three years it's a, a waiting list of like three years right now to get on government housing it's crazy but this was yeah. something that we used in a game to teach something is that something you find happens a lot with these kinds of games it's more like object lesson kind of teaching or or what
1: yeah so in my experience making and playing pervasive games they haven't been that way okay. um just because I don't uh, I don't like didactic games myself. I've played too many bad ones, but yours sounds great. Um, and It I was think hateful. Actually, it was not fun by any yeah. stretch of the
0: imagination, but well, that was the point. It, I mean,
1: and that's good. <laughs> yeah, right. That that, And I think that speaks to a strength of pervasive games yeah. uh, in contrast to board games and video games is that you can use these elements of embodiment that the 100-degree heat was now a player in the game that if this yeah. were a board game about experiencing homelessness, you would draw a card and said, 100-degree heat, movement mm-hmm. reduced by two. Right. And you don't feel that in your body the same way as you now I have to trek across this burning hot parking lot where I can see the heat waves ri- rising off of it and that pervasive games let you use those elements in a way that I think can be a lot more impactful.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Now, what are some other examples, like maybe of just some kind of, like you, you mentioned Tag, we said hide and seek. What are some other mm-hmm. just kind of well-known games that actually fall into this category of gaming?
1: I think some of them, it depends on the way in which they're played. So I feel like if I'm playing Tag in a park, it's not really a pervasive game because a park is a place for play. But as soon as I expand Tag into the city, now suddenly we have things going on that I have to deal with. Uh, maybe police, maybe passers-by. I have to worry about traffic is now a, a game element. Um, yeah, that's a, another good, well-known one. Let me give an example from from one that I made with a, yeah. the traffic thing, include me. And so um, I designed a game to play in the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood of Philadelphia, which is just like swanky neighborhood There's a beautiful park at the center of it and people were spies and so i had hidden you know briefcases and they had meetups and they had to get a get a drink and meet someone and exchange code words and all this cool stuff and the the end one of them was a trader and they were figuring out who the traitor was and by the end the trader would grab this briefcase and book it across the park to the other side and um the one time that i ran the game i ran this many times uh people i guess i hadn't given the safety speech well enough and people just Ran into traffic to catch the <laughs> to catch the thief, and like cars had to like brake real hard to yeah. stop them. And I was like, it really drove home to me this notion that like oh like these are game elements in play, and they have consequences beyond the world of the game. It's,
0: yeah, and that's yeah, a great point. It's, like it's when stuff. when the game moves into reality, so to speak, and outside the park, mm-hmm. outside the table, whatever, and, and pervades. And that's kind of the the thing we're talking about. This right. is, yeah, that pervades. story reminded me of something we did in college. So I lived in the dorm, and we would do this dorm wide game called mafia where it would be for like a week i think it was a 7 day period and at midnight like you had to sign up for the for the game and at midnight someone would slide an envelope under your door and they'd give you yeah. you'd have a name and a sticker and that was the the person you had to quote unquote kill, and you had to put, like you had to come by put the sticker on them. And so like nice. life, life was the game board. Like anywhere they go, you know. And so if they went yeah. home for the weekend, or you know, like whatever. And so like you would just you were on edge and paranoid that, that whole entire time because you know who you had to kill, but you didn't know who had your name. But you knew totally. kind of who was in the game. Like you knew basically like who was on that list. And so like every time you'd see them, you'd get real you know like anxious and like kind of uh-huh. keep your distance and all that. And I remember one time. So my roommate had this this girl in the dorm, and I was in the cafeteria, and I saw her there, and she was a friend, you know, like mm-hmm. we we knew each other, and so I called my roommate real quick, and I said, "Hey, you're a." Uh your person's in, in the cafeteria. And so he, like, came in like, real, you know, sneaking around. Look, at, It looks super creepy for everyone else, like, not in the game. We're like, who is this weird guy, like, creeping <laughs> right. through the cafeteria? Right. And he, like, came up, like, real slowly behind her and put the t- the uh, sticker on her. And she got so mad. And she said, who told you I was here? And he, he ratted me out. And she he walked over out, walked to over on to on my down. table and grabbed my drink and poured it on me. And yeah. then, like, she was that mad. Like, the game had been, like, involved that much emotion. But it's like, yeah, that was a pervasive game. And so it's, yeah. it's just kind of cool. You start thinking about, like, man. This is actually something more common than we realize.
1: Uh, thank you for bringing up that example of mafia. I, that's like the textbook example. It's like what I was trying to land on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I know it as assassin. It has other names, mm-hmm. but but that game where they're, the the player based dwindles as you mm-hmm. kill people, and yeah, that's like I I'm, I read this great book on pervasive games, and that shows up on like the first page. It's like here's the one that everyone will know. So. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. knowing it no I didn't <laughs> no, absolutely.
0: It's, it's, it's a lot of fun I right, what about board games like let's talk maybe an example there's not a ton but example of two mm-hmm. of actual like tabletop board game style things that are that fall into this category
1: yeah so my favorite examples are uh, the one most people have probably heard of is two rooms and a boom mm-hmm. where you have to divide people into a space where the one table or room can't hear the other table or room and that, you know, just the way that it leverages space is different from a lot of board games. Um, My good friend Andy Patton, who taught me a lot about pervasive games, made a game called Speakeasy that does the same thing, that you're in a restaurant, you have this sort of 1920s, sort of like mobster or police role, and you just sort of let go, and you have all these board game mechanics, you have a character card, you have cards that represent money, so it's very much in the board game tradition, just like Two Rooms, you know, all these games. But uh, we had, I was playing one example where We were playing in this like art space in Chicago and Al Capone and his crew uh, to evade the eyes of the police set up in the taco shop across the street and nobody running the game said you can't leave the building (laughs) and they were like well okay cool and so they took the sort of pervasive nature very much to heart and the police couldn't find them anywhere. They were looking in every corner of the room and in all the little side rooms and here they were leveraging the space to their to their advantage.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now what about the game Diplomacy? Cuz I'm sitting here thinking about it. Like I've known people that have talked about their experiences with Diplomacy and like so and they would run it over the course of like weeks, you know, and they would kind of mm-hmm. you'd make one action a day basically. And so you kind of have a lot of time to think. And so they would, you know, I knew some guys were playing at work. There's like four or five of them, you know, they're in the office. And so like somebody might write a letter and put it in an envelope and like drop it off at somebody's desk, you know, with like nice. some terms or some ideas. But hey, if you do this, I'll do this other thing. And and the way they do it, and like sometimes that's a lie. Like sometimes they're giving right. you one letter and they're giving somebody else a different right. one. And Classic they're be- diplomacy. yeah, they're betraying you with these like, you know these messages and all that. I, I guess that would kind of fall into the pervasive because yeah. it's moving off. That's the That's a table.
1: great example of and and the time pervasive nature yeah. that just because one month or year, I don't know how diplomacy works. How one one unit of game time passes. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I have a busy week that week and I'm not able to send all my letters and Mm -hmm. you have a really free week and you're able to use that time to your advantage and build a huge alliance. And (laughs) the time flows differently for the different players as opposed to at a more traditional board game where we all sit there and your turn and my turn and your turn and my turn.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, cool, man. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your experience because you're working on one of these games right now, and I want to talk kind of right. more specifically about that game in a minute. Kind of the event, and sure. the really cool thing you're working on, but just kind of give me your experience so far with with designing this game and kind of talk through what that's looked like from from this angle.
1: Yeah. So uh, my experience in pervasive games started in Chicago with my good friend Andy, who I just mentioned, and Waxwing Puzzle Company, uh, and I interned with him. I ran some games, and then I designed some games, uh, and He's really great at using the space of Chicago. He's lived there for a long time and knows there's all these awesome tunnels under downtown Chicago in the loop. So Chicago listeners, check it out. Um, But I started designing pervasive games there. And then when I moved to Philly, where I live now, uh, I started a little LLC to to do this here as well. So I licensed some of his games. I'll run Speakeasy here occasionally. I ran this game in Rittenhouse Square that I mentioned. Uh, I've run games in different art museums. Uh, If you can get museums on board, if you're thinking about designing pervasive games, they're great spaces for this kind of stuff. Uh, we did run one in the Chicago Museum of Art where the theme, the story of the game, was about stealing art. Um, and they, we didn't tell them about that until afterwards. Yeah, I was going to say, I think don't they know. They would be happy. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great game. We had a good time. But, uh, yeah, we didn't tell them about that. So, anyway, so now that's sort of my my history uh, of designing these games. And now I'm working on a game for uh, Carnival. It's this, like immersive art installation and i'm designing a game that will sort of encourage people to explore the space more fully there are a lot of costumed characters who and so the game will allow people to learn their stories outside of the more traditional there are some like stage shows and music shows that happen um that will hopefully gain some depth once people have played this pervasive game that i'm working on that they'll get the inside story of these characters by interacting with them in the game
0: yeah, very cool. Now, let me back up to the museum. How did you use the museum kind of in this <laughs> gaming situation?
1: yeah, so the the story that I told about the Chicago Museum of Art, um we I, I worked on this game with Andy called Heist, and uh, we had two teams of people, and they had cell phones. Mostly, when I design these things, I try to design analog because that's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. but um we use cell phone cameras, and so, each team would go to a different wing in the museum. We had separated the museum map into some sort of like lettered areas. And so if, you know, one team was in area A, the other team would be in area C. So they weren't too close to each other and they would choose a piece of art and take a photo of it, of the full piece and text it, uh, no, excuse me, of, of obscured, like half of the piece of art or mm-hmm. a third of the piece and text it to the other team. And both teams would do this to each other. And then they would say, okay, that's your target. So you're a, you're a team of thieves. You're an oceans 11, oceans eight heist mm-hmm. crew. And, you don't know what you're stealing because the team has only texted you one third of this piece of art. You know they're in this wing, but this wing is huge. And so and then we had movement rules. So if you're outnumbered by people in the other team, uh, you can't go through that room. So it was sort of an area control game using the fact that the Chicago Museum of Art has all these corridors and choke points. And we set them up so that people could kind of strategically block some choke points while leaving others open. Um, and then so once you once you found the piece of art... You would take a picture of someone from your team in front of a full photo of it to prove that you found it, and then your team had to escape using the same movement rules. You had to get to the exit without the other team blocking you.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Now, how do you keep people from running in the museum?
1: Uh, well, so the other rule was, uh, if security throws you out of the museum, uh, you your team's down a player. <laughs> All right, so, there you go. <laughs> you just let security take her. And <laughs> we had, and that's a very you know pervasive game move of these security people are here and they're sort of. They're not against what we're doing. I'm sure they would think it was cool, but yeah. they their presence, we can leverage that into the game without them even knowing what they're doing. That just by asking them to do their jobs the way they would normally do them that they can play the game too.
0: Yeah, very cool. Now this is something that would be really res- interesting to do at a place like Gen Con or Origins and really help people experience the full thing because I mean those, especially Gen Con, is so massive or Essen. There's so much to see and so much to do and this might give people a little more uh, clarity, a little more focus on where to go and what to see and what time and that kind of thing. Have you ever thought about doing one at a uh, game convention?
1: Uh, not until you just mentioned it but now my mind my <laughs> mind is spinning. I'm uh, I'm going to go in and pack some plug this fall so yeah. Who knows? Maybe something will pop up. It could be really but, fun, uh,
0: especially if you get you know yeah. other publishers or you know people that have booths that obviously want people to come by their booth and say, "Hey, go go get the uh, the custom die that's for free over at this booth, and go get the little little you know like almost like a that's a scavenger hunt in a lot of ways, but like creating yeah. it into like some kind of a gaming kind of thing that could be really interesting. And publishers might totally. you know help you out. Hey, you're getting people at their booth, you know, you're bringing people to to see what they got. So
1: publishers, if you're listening, <laughs> reach out to me. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, I, I, honestly, I love that idea. Um, I think part of the other thing that, that this is bringing up for me that pervasive games do well is they help, they give a space some like depth yeah. of meaning that yeah. like uh, scavenger hunts are cool and scavenger hunts I think are a sort of like proto-pervasive game. Mm-hmm. But I think what, what, at least what excites me about pervasive games is this notion that like there's a whole other world mm-hmm. under there, this sort of like fantasy sci-fi notion of like you can open the portal and suddenly it's like things have new meanings or like a spy movie that like Oh, that person walking past was really part of this giant conspiracy, and you yeah. can unmask it. And that that using that lens of sort of exploration and that wish for fantasy that a lot of people have uh, can help layer these mundane. Not that not that gaming cons are mundane, but that they sort of have this presence that you know mm-hmm. that you're there to walk around and see booths and buy product and demo the newest hotness. Yeah. But that if you're maybe if you're also there to I don't know solve a mystery or. That and then it just adds that extra layer of excitement.
0: Yeah, for sure, and it just just makes it interesting and cool and more enjoyable, and especially you you get to play a game while at a game convention, which is just kind of this weird metaphysical thing happening. But yeah, like maybe asking a publisher to, you know, giving them a prompt or giving them something to read that if someone asks you this very specific question, you know, like they're you know they're the informant or something, and you've got right, your spy right. trying eagle to figure flies out. Right, Eyes at midnight or something. Yeah, something like that. It could be yep. really interesting. It'd take a good bit of work, but I, I think that uh, it could be a lot of fun to uh, to do. Now let's talk about bit. the more design aspect. Like, what do you? How do you design one of these things? Like, what do you do? You sit down, you start kind of figuring out what. Like, what does it look like on your notebook yeah. before it becomes the actual game?
1: So for me, the things my usual design prompts when I think of these kinds of games are the space that I have a place that I really love, for whatever reason, Rittenhouse Square is this beautiful neighborhood with these swanky buildings and cafes that I don't hang out in, because I'm not some fancy downtown lawyer. That's, you're not you know, swanky? That's, oh my gosh, <laughs> you, you, your listeners can't see my outfit, I'm wearing just a plain black t-shirt, that's, that's how I roll. <laughs> I but, assume um, that's
0: all there is, too, I can only see you know your chest up, but I assume well, you're only, only that, wearing a plain black t-shirt. Leave that t-shirt.
1: up to the, to the mystery. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that that I find a space that I really value, and Rittenhouse Square is beautiful, and has these giant old trees, and these cool little nooks and crannies in the park but it's so hard to hang out in a lot of times because it has this sort of style vibe and so i wanted to bring people into it and be able to explore the park in a really unique way um same with our museum um the museum of art of chicago is is beautiful and there's all kinds of collections you'd never see maybe unless you're sort of hunting for a route around the blockade that your other team has put there so i usually start with a place um and then sort of Build up from there to think about what what do people normally do here? what are things that they might be willing to do here that they don't otherwise do? and then the sort of the story aspect of like why are they here? So like there's this awesome old bookstore in this old music hall in my neighborhood. It's just this giant like cavern filled with dusty books, and i'm I'm sort of loosely working on a a game for that and uh, it has to be about books because, right. can't, you know, it can't be about something else. You're there in a bookstore. So letting the setting sort of cue what I'm doing is is key for me when I start to design one of these games. And then the other thing that I always think about is that uh, as someone who makes board games and plays board games, uh, these games have to be really simple mm-hmm. in comparison to board games. Because when you're all around the table together, you can all sort of collaboratively figure out, oh, this is what the rule intended. Even the clearest rules, you know, have these sort of edge cases, things that are confusing, and when everyone's there, you can say, okay, this is how we're gonna play it. Yeah. And in a pervasive game, you people show up, you send them loose, and if they misinterpret the rules, hopefully it doesn't mess things up. Right. Hopefully they don't run into traffic because they misinterpreted a rule because <laughs> yeah. that would be a bummer.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Now what's interesting about this, thinking about it from a place, like beginning with the place, is mm-hmm. that you could have things I'm just sitting here thinking like what kind of what kind of mechanics? What kind of things could you do if you have, yeah. like, if you're trying to fill out a letter or, if, like, fill out like something, some kind of message? You know, you could have people go to the art installation in room 401 and look at the third word on this painting, yep. and that goes into the next slot for this message that they're trying to create. Or you, in a bookstore, you could do the same thing. You know, find this book on the shelf and open it up, and the first word on page 72 is the next word you need. Like, you can like, really make the make the setting. The game, I mean, and just make yeah. it part of the mechanisms. That's just a really cool thing. Have you, have you done that kind of thing?
1: Absolutely, and especially the bookstore game is actually proven to be hard because books can move. Um, and if and I was on the re- other team, I would take the book. Game. Like, now I win. That's <laughs> and that's like, you know, that, that's a valid play, unless right. the will say otherwise. Yeah. But uh, spaces that have a lot of, like, plaques or, yeah. like, permanent, permanent structures, mm. permanent arrangements. Street signs, things like that. Things that you can use that you know will be there. Mm-hmm. When you you know you take your scouting trip, I take a lot of photos. I draft the game, and then I come back and make sure everything's still there because I don't want someone looking for you know the third word on the plaque, and the plaque has been taken down by the parks department. Yeah. Um, that would be a bummer. Right.
0: Now, as far as wind conditions, what are the what are the typical wind conditions that you have? I mean, if you're playing a game, you gotta how do you win? And so, what does that look right. like for these kinds of games?
1: Yeah, it's a that's honestly maybe that's the hardest question um, because. Yeah. It's it can either uh, are you familiar with the sort of the dichotomy of like progressive versus emergent games?
0: Uh, not really, and just so, explain it to me.
1: <laughs> sure, totally. So this is a concept that uh, my good friend Andy, who I shouted out earlier, taught me about, and it comes from this great book by Jesper Juul called Half Real. Um, but this notion that some games are progressive, that you sort of you start at a point and you overcome a challenge, and that lets you go to the next point, and you then you overcome the next challenge, and you go to the next point. That they're sort of what we might call on rails, mm-hmm. but that kind of has some derogatory connotations. Yeah. Um, but that these are games where you're going from point A to point B. And so a lot of pervasive games end up being that way because it's hard to control what people are going to do if you give them a sort of open mm-hmm. space. But then the other types of games are emergent games where uh, a simple rule set can create a lot of complicated or uh, unpredictable interactions. So the classic example of an emergent game is chess. There's not that many rules to chess, but there's you know however many millions of games that could possibly be played. Right. So... Um, the win conditions are, for a progressive game are easy. It's get to the end. Yeah. Uh, you know, open the last envelope or meet the person who's standing at this place that you had no idea where it was or even who they were at the start. But as you go through each challenge, you learn more and more until you're able to complete that last challenge. Yeah.
0: Escape the museum uh, like you were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, right. Escape rooms are, are really nice examples. I think I haven't played that many. I've played a few escape rooms and they're great. But um, I think they're mostly progressive challenges that there's not a lot of different branching paths for how mm-hmm. to get to the key that you sort of solve this puzzle and maybe you can solve them out of order, but you get there and you get out. Mm-hmm. Whereas an emergent game is something more like um, like the heist game that I mentioned, that sure you have a goal, but how you go about that goal is really going to be impacted by how the opposing team chooses to play as opposed to how the game runner set up the game. Um, something else I've learned a lot by interacting with folks in the LARP community, okay. live-action role-play, yeah. um, that that these games, pervasive games, have a lot in common with LARPs because they use space and they use the player's body sort of as their pawn on the board. Um, and, and I'm learning, I'm, I'm sort of trying to integrate some of these ideas into this bookstore game that LARPs are often a lot about, not about winning, or they're about feelings and the story generated by playing. And so thinking more about Mostly, mostly what I've been thinking about in my pervasive game design thus far has been where people are and what they're doing. But LARPs are sort of teaching me to think about like what people are feeling based on where they are and what they're doing. And so, um, yeah, maybe having some win conditions based around like did you accomplish your character's goal? Yeah. And and maybe that is actionable within the mechanics of the game, or maybe it's not. And then we start to move into sort of like borderline: is this a game or not? But yeah. Uh, it's it's definitely a part of this whole sort of pervasive conversation of like playful use of space.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's super interesting. I go back to the, the module I did with the with those high school kids. You know, everybody, there was like four or five different goals. And so you, right. you, you know, in, maybe you had 20 kids. So you have four kids doing this goal and four kids doing that and something like that. And so it was like, right. can you get a job? And it's like, all right, what does that look like? Well, you're going to need an ID. You're going to need a birth certificate. You're going to need right. a social security card. You're going to like all these things it takes. To get a job, do you have the clothing that you need to wear, all that kind of stuff? And so you had this like, here's your victory condition, and but everybody was doing, everybody had different victory conditions, more or less. Like there was right. overlap because there's well, multiple people, but uh, and so you could do that kind of thing with these kinds of games. Yeah, so you a have symmetric play. Yeah, totally. And so, but at the same time, like it's symmetrical in some things, but then the win condition's right. different. Like you know, a lot of people you need an ID for a lot of different things, so your win condition yeah. might require an ID but it's totally different from my, my wind condition that kind of thing.
1: Right. And so it's, and that can provide a nice sort of emergent overlap of oh now the line at the ID place is really long yep. and maybe I can go do something else first or maybe not and I have to stand in this line because all the other players want an ID as well.
0: Yep, absolutely. It's really interesting uh, inter- interesting areas to be explored more in the future. And I hope as this as Maybe this podcast like sparks some ideas with people like, oh man, well, I could do this in my hometown. I could do this in my youth group or at uh, my job. Like if you have like a really interesting workplace and good culture where you could kind of create this kind totally. of thing for for a, like a, a almost like a, like a retreat. You know how we do like team building retreats, and a lot of times that's just a, yeah. a lot of a lot of like really crappy games that are supposed to build yep. team. And like eh, maybe we could do something different, and maybe this could be an, yeah uh,
1: an idea. I would I would love that. That would be like the perfect world outcome of anyone hearing this podcast to to try and make a pervasive game. Not that I'm like the spokesperson for the forum at all, but I sort of stumbled upon this way of making games that's very similar to and very different from board games, but that um, that the lessons that you learn from designing board games can really play into these pervasive games in a cool way. And I think that the people who are thinking deeply about board game design, if you listen to this podcast... Mm-hmm. Uh, could really make some pretty wild and and interesting and pervasive games.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, I'm sure there are ways you could add cards. You could add dice. You could add like lots yeah. of normal game board game components and and, and mechanisms and whatnot. Uh, maybe instead of a deck building, you have a team building kind of mechanic, right? right? Where you're you're doing certain things to get certain things on your team or some people I mean, there's a lot. There's a million different ways you could do this, which I think is, is oh, so yeah. cool. Now, how do you test one of these games? Like, what does playtesting look like?
1: <laughs> it's hard, uh, and. To, be totally honest, these games get less playtesting than they probably should because just that, that's a big hurdle to overcome. Um, when I am making a game that I want to, that I want to run for a paying audience, which I'm not doing as much anymore. Um, but I'll, I'll run it with friends first and just people who, who aren't going to pay, uh, (laughs) because they might have a terrible time. Um, uh, part of that and part of that sort of goes against like the rules of playtesting, which is like test with people who you don't know and people who will be mean to you if the game is bad. Right. But uh, a lot of times you don't have a choice. It's like, I need you to come and do this thing for me. So it's because we're friends, because you'll do it for me. Um, In Chicago, with Waxwing, the place where I started doing this, we had a really nice community of people on Facebook who were interested in playtesting and playing these kinds of games. And so once you've built an audience, uh, you can really leverage that and that people who play one pervasive game tend to want to play another one. And so you can say, okay, come playtest our next project It might not be as good, but we'll give you a coupon for when we run it for real, or we'll give you a free entry to our next game of this other game that we know works and that you love playing. So, uh, yeah, it's hard. Um, It's hard to playtest these games, but it's really important, almost, I would say, more so than with board games, because of that notion of the real world interfering and the possibilities for, like, actual physical bodily harm that (laughs) you need to know, like, oh, yeah, they're going to run. I got to remind them, don't run in traffic, even if it, like, sort of breaks the immersion of the game. Yeah. To say that that if I forget to do that, they're gonna run in traffic because it's so exciting to chase this who has the briefcase.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, cool, man. Well, what, what are some things that people just need to think about? Let's say someone has an idea right now. They're driving to work, you know, listen to the podcast. They're like, "Oh man!" And they have this really cool idea. What are what are some things that you would tell them just based on your experience, things you've learned, like what to do, what not to do? What are some of those things? Yeah.
1: Um. This. Oh man. There's there are so many not to do. Um. <laughs> And you you run into them pretty quickly. But I think the the big ones that I would say are like suit the mechanics to what you want people to do physically. So um, I had a game. I was trying to incorporate dice into a pervasive game for a long time. And I finally was able to do it in a sort of like Game of Thrones theme, kind of Game of Thrones clone game that we played in a restaurant um, because people had a table. And the fact that there was a table was just revolutionary. I was like, oh, my gosh. We can use dice. We're going to do it. <laughs> but if you're running around in the park and you're asking people to roll dice, that's going to be a no-go. Like, where do you do it? On, your, on the palm of your hand? Mm-hmm. Do you stop and do it on a bench? Like, that kind of breaks the emergence. So thinking about how people will physically enact the mechanics you ask them to is something that, for me, as a board game designer, was hard to learn because I'm so used to assuming there's a table. People are sitting in chairs around that table. Everyone can reach all the parts of the table equally. And that's an assumption you have to throw out the window with pervasive games. Um, another thing to think about is just like keeping your players safe and like asking them to do things that are like legal mm-hmm. and, and fun um, or even like like above the stand. Like so when when I played this game Rittenhouse Square, people were moving around the park and moving around the neighborhood around the park. And I knew that the, the park staff and the police might ask them what they were doing. And so part of my sort of pregame briefing was like, here's where I will be. Here's my phone number if mm-hmm. anyone gives you a problem call me and I will immediately come and, and intervene and say like look this person is doing this thing because I told them to so mm-hmm. if you have a problem with it uh, talk you know like let them off the hook and and have the problem with me and give me the ticket or the citation or whatever um, that never happened thank goodness but when you're in the real world it's an important thing to think about because mm-hmm. people experience the real world differently and uh, can get into trouble and that's part of what makes pervasive games fun is that you're right on this, like, bleeding edge of, like, am I doing something that's that's permitted or not? Mm-hmm. Um, but that the designer, I think, has a really important burden to be aware of that. Um, and then I think my last piece of pervasive game design advice is just keep it simple. Yeah. Because of that thing we talked about, that there's not that community of players sitting around the table enforcing the rules and figuring out the rules together. That you need rules that people can figure out on their own when they're off, away from you, running with, like, stress and adrenaline in their blood. Mm-hmm
0: yeah for sure man. well, cool. I'm excited to kind of see where this genre of games this category of games goes and just kind of see how it's people awesome. uh take these ideas right and t- I want to see some kickstarters I want to see some like actual products being made yeah you know of people coming up with these things that that other people could run you know that you don't have to just have it all on your brain and maybe that's something I don't know if you're looking into is is how to like turn this into something that other people could run you know who don't even know who you are they could buy it off the shelf yeah. and, and do that you're looking into that yeah.
1: I, I'm thinking about it. It's hard for me because so much of my design of these kinds of games is place-based. Yeah. That it's hard for me to say, ah, yes, Rittenhouse Square, but in your city, like <laughs> what I love about that space. Yeah. That maybe to that game is so specific. Mm-hmm. But this bookstore game that I'm working on, I have thought about, and I'm sort of, as I kind of loosely piece the mechanisms together, I'm trying to think about: is this a game that needs to run in this particular bookstore with this particular like dusty set of shelves, or is this something that I could say? run this in any bookstore yeah. and, and sell a kit. And I feel like these games, again, I mentioned the LARP similarity. That's sort of a, an RPG similarity mm-hmm. that, you know, you have this sort of set of mechanics and it's not necessarily even the components that you, you know, you might need to supply your own dice. You might need to supply your own pens and miniatures for an RPG, but but that the game experience is something that I can hopefully, you know, package up and then put in a place that other people can get it because so many of these pervasive game designs, Uh, kind of like, not like Die on the Vine, that's being too negative, but they happen once and it's a really really cool Mm -hmm. experience for everyone who was there and everyone else has to hear about it because it's never going to happen again.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you could even maybe design things, uh, design a game for somewhere like Walmart or Barnes & Noble or someone that's, like, almost everybody has access to no matter where you are in the country. Like, just make it something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Using the kind of uh, cookie-cutter nature Mm -hmm. of so many of our businesses today to to advantage. That's cool. Exactly. Well, cool, man. Well, tell me
0: about this uh, this event that you've been working on, this carnival.
1: Yeah, totally. So uh, I I emailed you because I'm making a pervasive game for a big theater and activism and art and music event that has been going on for many years. Uh, But it's exciting because it's happening in my city this year. It's happening in Philadelphia. And um, they asked me to make a game for it. So I was like, great. So the event uh, in brief is the Carnival de Résistance, and it's a uh, theater, uh, immersive action and performance that takes over uh, a space for two weeks in Philly. We're actually going to be in two different spaces because of the nature of the space. So we're building a carnival midway and a sort of like magical carnival world inside this church downtown, uh, Art Street United, United, United Methodist, if you're in Philly. It's right by City Hall. And then we're going to be living, uh, the the crew members uh, will be living on this urban farm up in the northern part of the city and running demonstrations about uh, living in harmony with the earth. They're going to be making all their food. They're going to be living petroleum free for a month. So uh, this event has a long history and has a lot of story and has a a strong sort of penchant for audience involvement. So people come to the carnival, they play carnival games, they interact with roaming musicians and magicians. but the organizers, uh, some of whom I'm friends with and, and know, wanted to kind of deepen that engagement. So they asked me to make this pervasive game it will happen at the, the Carnival Midway, where in addition to the sort of normal Carnival Midway events that you would expect, you can talk to these characters. And uh, the, the game mechanic that we're using, the sort of narrative that's being laid upon us is that the characters uh, all have these dreams, and the dreams are represented by marbles, mm-hmm. And some event has happened, I won't spoil it, but some event has happened that's preventing them from activating their dreams. And so by playing the game and talking to the characters, they might send you on quests throughout the midway space to talk to other people or pick up other things. And if you complete these quests, they'll give you their dreams. And we have this big marble sculpture that at the end of the night... If we gather enough marbles through playing the game, they'll all sort of tumble down and represent the, the activation of people's dreams.
0: Yeah, no, that's really cool, man. I'm excited. Now, how far along are you in the actual design process?
1: Oh, I'm not as far along as I should be. <laughs> uh, it's, we're recording this in late June, and yeah. the first Carnival performance is the last weekend of July. Um, but I'm working with uh, the, the Carnival crew, so uh, our midway director, JD, and this uh, woman who works in immersive and interactive theater named Taylor Schultz. Uh, they're both incredible sort of design partners with me. Um, so, yeah, we're we're getting there. Yeah, it's going <laughs> to be great. It's going to be great. It's coming love, along. That's right.
0: What I love is how you're a designer of micro games and gigantic games that take up the entire city. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> like both, uh, both sides of the spectrum. I try and work, try and work at both ends. That's right.
0: <laughs> That's right. Well, cool, man. Well, tell me the dates for, uh, for this carnival.
1: Yeah, totally. So it's in Philadelphia. So if you're in or around Philly, uh, please come check it out. Uh, the carnival residency will run... From hold on, I'm going to check the website to get the dates. So the the whole thing will run from July 24th to August 7th, and that's this residency on the farm. They're having workshops about different kinds of eco justice and economic justice things. But the carnival midway, the part that I'm most involved at, and the part where you can play this game that I'm working on, uh, is the last weekend of July, so July 27th and 28th, and on the first weekend of August, August 3rd and 4th. Yeah. so So come down to Center City Philly and. Uh, help some wacky carnival characters activate their dreams.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds really cool, man. I hope it goes really well, and, and I'm sure it's going to be great. And I hope I hope a lot of people get to experience it, right, and just have a lot of fun playing the game. That's what we all want, right? We want to make games that yeah. people enjoy. And so this that is, people this is play. no different. Well, it's cool, totally. man. Well, Greg, man, really appreciate your time. We're about to head over into a bonus round where we talk about the power of games and how games can activate a lot of interesting emotions and, and different things in people, and how they've done that throughout history. And so, yeah, Greg, again, thanks for coming on the show, and good luck with uh, pervasive games and everything else you got going on right now.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Gabe.
0: Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding, fulfillment, and warehousing.